Okay, Boomer. Hello, I'm Robert Rickman. On this program, we'll hear from a Boomer, a first responder who came upon a scene of incredible death and destruction when he was in his 20s. And he stuffed this horrible memory for decades until, well, the tragedy started in the air over San Diego in 1978. Hey, what do we got here? It's bad. Huh? We're hit, man. We're hit. Tough. We're going down. Mark Twain allegedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but does rhyme. Can you think of anything today that rhymed with these words uttered more than a century ago? The world must be made safe for democracy. Edward R. Murrow will report later on in the program about a president who served 100 years ago. And this century, Ann Stahlheber ran the Carbondale Farmers Market last year after retiring. We just can't imagine what would we do if we didn't have something to do kind of thing. Keep busy. That's the ticket. And we'll also examine how keeping active in our leisure time may delay or even prevent dementia. And so maybe coffee can do the same thing. We'll hear about that. Then we come to the banana scam. You know, when you're at the self-checkout and select bananas for 44 cents a pound and scan a T-bone steak. Then there's juice jacking. No, not fruit juice, but the juice that comes out of those USB charges located conveniently in hotels and also in airports. And finally, in a few days, you might experience a Social Security stealth tax. Illegal? No. We'll hear all about that in the news, which is next. Boomer News from OK Boomer. Here's something to think about. Any regular leisure time physical activity at any age is linked to better brain function in later life. But maintaining an exercise routine throughout adulthood seems to be best for preserving mental acuity and memory. That conclusion comes from a long-term study published online in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. Physical activity is modestly associated with a lower risk of dementia, cognitive decline, and loss of later life mental acuity. But it's not known whether the timing, frequency, or maintenance of leisure time physical activity might be key to later life cognitive abilities. The researchers were particularly keen to know if physical activity might be most beneficial in specific sensitive periods across the life course or across multiple time periods. For instance, periods such as the age of 36, 43, 53, 60 to 64, and 69. Now, the researchers recommend participating in any physical activity across adulthood. And based on the study results, researchers encourage inactive adults to be more active at any time and encourage already active adults to maintain activity. This could improve later life cognition. Speaking of cognition, what do the research studies reveal about caffeine and dementia? The effects of caffeine on the risk of developing dementia has been studied many times, but these studies might be quite small or only apply to a specific group of people. One key study in Florida followed people with mild cognitive impairment, that's thinking and memory problems beyond normal aging, and they monitored their caffeine levels and their cognitive ability over the next two to four years. Now, the researchers found that people who did not develop dementia had twice as much caffeine in their blood as those who did. However, this type of study cannot be relied on for a definitive answer, and that's because there is no way to determine if the caffeine levels affect the dementia or vice versa. 
For instance, sleeping problems brought on by dementia might cause someone to give up caffeine. Some observational studies of volunteers have shown a protective effect against Alzheimer's disease only in women, while others have shown no effect at all. These studies suffer from the same problems of Florida studies did, and, and we mentioned the results cannot distinguish between cause and effect. What would possibly answer what caused what could be a controlled trial, where people are randomly split into two groups, one with caffeine and one without, and they are monitored over time. However, there have been no studies of this kind to confirm the link. Let's take a look at my watch. Yeah, we, we have a ways to go before it's time for coffee. So we will continue to scams. Here's a surprising statistic. 20% of shoppers using self-checkout have reportedly stolen merchandise. The 20% is a retail industry estimate. Now, the banana trick is a common scam. The scammer rings up an expensive item that's priced by weight and selecting that, it's bananas instead, which is selling at 49 cents per pound on average. Sea Change Technologies is addressing the scam in a recent partnership with Diebold Nixdorf. The new technology has been designed specifically to recognize fruits, vegetables, baked goods, and items without a barcode during the scanning process. The AI self-checkout uses SeaChange's Seaware technology compared with Nixdorf's Vynamic Smart Vision to identify the products. It will automatically recognize the item and scan it into the system so shoppers cannot manually put in a code for, say, bananas. The AI checkout machines are expected to be tested early this year in the first quarter, and uh, they're expected to be released sometime this year. And industry source says the need for employees to assist customers with produce items at checkout could decrease by as much as 45%. The software at three major store locations in the UK and across Europe is expected to debut in thousands of stores later this year. Meanwhile, Walmart has implemented several anti-theft measures recently due to a rise in theft that was noted as, quote, historically high, unquote, by CEO Doug McMillan back in December. These measures reportedly include weight sensors, cameras that snap photos of customers, ID recognition software, and more. So maybe by the end of the year, the banana scam won't work anymore. Now put yourself in this position. After being on the road the whole day, either traveling for business or pleasure, you find the phone's battery is nearly dead despite it being on the car charger. So when you get to the hotel, you plug it into one of those convenient charging stations and uh, you wish you hadn't have done that because the FCC warns us not to use public USB power charging stations in airports, hotels, and anywhere else because they may contain dangerous malware. USB connections are designed to power the phone and exchange data. This means that the scammers can use USB connections to hide and deliver secret data while you, the user, thinks that all you're doing is recharging your cell phone's battery. This is called juice jacking. There is also video jacking where the scammer could record the screen of a device that was plugged in for a charge. Also, that free USB cable you got as a promotional item can also be risky. That's because electrical circuitry is so small that many computers and malware could be placed inside of the USB cord itself. Imagine that. So, use an AC power outlet instead of a USB charging station. Also, bring AC chargers, car chargers, and your own USB cables with you when traveling. 
carry a portable charger or external battery, and only use your own personal cables purchased from a trusted supplier. Finally, consider carrying a charging-only cable which prevents data from sending or receiving while charging. So, technology is getting increasingly more popular, increasingly more complicated, and increasingly more dangerous. And while we're talking about dangerous things, when I was in college during the 70s, students' social security numbers were printed on their student IDs. Now, about 10 years ago, I posted a photo of my student ID from 1971 on Facebook, and someone commented that a crook could take my social security number and rip me off in a variety of unpleasant ways. I took the photo down and had no problems. Then, but what might have happened had I not taken it down? This from AARP. Who really needs to know your social security number? Here are three ways to keep your social security number out of the wrong hands. You might get a phone call from someone pretending to be from the Social Security Administration, asking you to confirm your number. Don't oblige. A Social Security representative doesn't need to call you for this information because they already have it. If you receive documents containing your Social Security number, you should either lock them in a safe place or shred them. If you don't have a shredder, many communities have places where you can drop off sensitive documents and they'll shred them for you. Don't be afraid to ask, do you really need my Social Security number? There are organizations that do require your number, your employer is one of them. But others might ask for it and they don't really need it, such as your doctor's office or the dentist. They can get that information from your insurance company. For more Social Security tips, go to aarp.org socialsecurity. This tax season, older taxpayers may find they owe more money to Uncle Sam than expected. The reason? More of their Social Security benefits may be taxed following a higher, that's 5.9% cost of living adjustment in 2022. This year's record 8.7% cost of living adjustment may also prompt more benefits to be taxed, which retirees may see when they file next year. Unlike other tax thresholds, the Social Security income levels have not been adjusted for inflation since taxation of benefits began in 1984. Not moving the brackets or indexing them gradually exposes more and more people to income taxes on their Social Security benefits, and this is according to David Freitag, a financial planning consultant and Social Security expert at Mass Mutual. The result is a stealth tax, says Freitag. Up to 85% of Social Security benefits may be taxed based on current tax rules. The levies beneficiaries pay is determined by a formula called combined income, the sum of adjusted gross income, non-taxable interest, and half of Social Security benefits. Those who are subject to the highest taxes on benefits, up to 85%, have combined incomes that are more than $34,000 if they file individually or more than $44,000 if they are married and filed jointly. Up to 50% of benefits are taxable for individuals with combined incomes between $25,000 and $34,000 or married couples with between $32,000 and $44,000. So that's something to be aware of in a few days. Let's talk about fine dining with fresh vegetables. The Farmer's Market of Carbondale is open once again Saturdays from 8 until noon. Now, I've made a few trips to the Farmer's Market to buy fresh veggies, and I recently talked with the lady who was running the whole thing. My name is Ann Stahlheber, and I'm here at the Farmer's Market in Carbondale, um, market manager, and we're growers of native plants. Now, you are 
past retirement age, as you've told me, you're my age, 70. Why did you decide to do this, and what did you do before you retired? Um, I worked as a case manager at a rural health clinic four days a week, and then my husband had done this, uh, growing plants and greenhouse work for, that was his career, and I always helped on the weekends or my day off, and then when I reached I didn't really retri retire from being a case manager. I still do that two days a week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I always felt like that used parts of my mind that I wasn't using when we were doing greenhouse stuff and also rested my body so I didn't overdo it with the physical stuff that goes along with greenhouse work. So it sounds like you planned this and with an, the idea of keeping busy both mentally and physically. Oh yeah, yeah. We just can't imagine what would we do if we didn't have something to do kind of thing. So we've, we've stuck with it. We've, we don't do as much as we used to. We've changed. We used to drive to St. Louis and deliver plants. We don't do that anymore. Mainly we're selling locally, but um, it keeps us busy enough that we enjoy it and don't feel too overwhelmed by it. Do you find that you have more energy doing this than if you were to sit around watching TV? Oh yes, actually I think I'm more tired when I come home from my desk job the two days a week than I am when I'm physically active out on the greenhouse or taking care of the grounds in the garden. Now health experts, um, psychological experts say that if somebody retires and they do nothing, watch television, they are more prone to dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Well, I probably tend to agree with that. You, you read a lot in the news about people who just sit and watch TV or, um, and I, I think it takes away from happiness, from enjoyment, from feeling like you're doing something still, and um, you lose that. And physically, I think both of us have slowed down from what we used to do, but we're still active, we still walk, we still make a effort to, to be active because we, we know that makes us feel better and sleep better, and uh, hopefully that's going to pay off and being healthy as we age. Okay, do you have any final thoughts? No, just find something you like to do. And I think it is, it's different if you, um, when you retire, you have enough money to not feel stressed from working. You can enjoy what you're doing better. If we had to worry about you know, making a certain amount of money each week because to pay our bills, that would be a whole different story. But if you have the freedom to do a project you like or get active in a craft that you like and you can afford, afford it, that's what you need to be doing. A note, Farmer's Market of Carbondale is open every Saturday from 8 until noon, April through November, rain or shine, at the Westtown Shopping Center on Carbondale's west side. Now let's turn to the Liberty Bell. Liberty Bell with Ding Dong, Bob Smith, and his wife, Marsha. Okay, let's get going with some good trivia here on Hey Boomer. This is Bob Smith along with Marsha Smith with some fun facts for you today. Okay, Bob. The Statue of Liberty holds a gigantic tablet in her hand. What are the words written on that tablet? 1776 as the date, doesn't it? Yes. On, on it in Roman numerals. Yes. But what, what are the words? I don't know. It's, it's a date. Oh, it's, it is a date. Yeah. So I'm right, July 4th, 1776. That's it, July 4th, 1776. It's the only words written on the statue itself. On the pedestal is a, the great and famous poem by Emma Lazarus, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses. Yearning to Breathe Free. 
Yes, mm-hmm. and that's on a plaque mounted on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Marcia, there's a certain term we use today about a change, a moment of change. Pivot? Like pivot, but it's not pivot. Okay. And it originally had racist origins. What is the term? Ah, I don't know. Tipping point. Ah, yes. Tipping point. It describes the critical point when a change that had been a possibility now becomes inevitable. Okay. And when it was popularized, according to Merriam-Webster, it was applying to one phenomenon in particular, white flight for the suburbs. That's where that originally oh, came from in the 50s. As, really? As white people abandoned urban areas for the suburbs, journalists began using the phrase tipping point in relation to the percentage of minority neighbors it took to trigger that reaction among white city residents. Now, that phrase wasn't coined in the 1950s. It first appeared in the 19th century, but it has racist origins in its first major use. I I didn't know that. But people say, oh, that's the tipping point. Yeah. That's when things change. That comes from there. That's the origin. Okay. Easter Island, you know about that? It's home to those giant hand-carved statues. The stones, the heads, yes. Yes. They're called Moya, M-O-A-I. They were made around 700 to 800 CE, and they're 13 feet tall and 14 tons each. Wow. So here's my question. How many are there on Easter Island? Well, I think there are a lot more than they thought. I think they found the quarry uh, where they came from and another location, I believe, and they're a lot taller than they thought they were. They, well, know, they're 13 feet tall. and tall. Well, from the ground, but you could dig down farther and they're sculpted in, the shoulders are sculpted. I'm not privy to that information. Well, according to my archaeological <laughs> sources. Okay, so the question was how many are there? Um, yeah. 13? 1,000. Wow! Yeah, 14 tons each, Bob. Bigger um, than any of my creations. <laughs> Well, honey, your your little claymation thing made with Play-Doh was, was stunning. It looked cute. It was. Jeez, isn't that amazing? And uh, yeah, there's still a lot of mystery about that. Oh, there's so much mystery of going way back. And to be off this, this island that's isolated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do they do that? Go ahead, Bob. You and I have often wondered about the sport of curling. It's like, (laughs) is that really a sport? You know, we always look at that. But what town is the curling capital of America? I'll give you some choices. Missoula, Montana, Burlington, Vermont, Bemidji, Minnesota, or Traverse City, Michigan? Ah, Montana. No, it's uh, Bemidji, Minnesota. It is Bemidji. Okay. Yeah, they're the curling capital of America, and they have the medals to prove it, the Olympic medals. No kidding. Curlers from Bemidji won medals at both the 2006 and 2018 Winter Olympics. Located in northern Minnesota, the town is home to only about 15,000 people, but the Bemidji Curling Club has attracted thousands more when it hosts national championship competitions. I've been to Bemidji, haven't we? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very uh, woody up there, <laughs> woodsy, <laughs> and beautiful. Yes. Okay, my singing husband. What me, me, is, me, me. What is the rarest of all voice types? You are what, a baritone? Baritone or a bass. Okay. Yeah. What's the rarest? Yeah. Ah, uh, there is a voice that goes way up high in the registers. I don't know what it's called. The rarest voice type is a countertenor. It's a male singer who can sing as high as a soprano or a mezzo-soprano. Wow. It's the most rare of all the voices. So every so often you hear a guy who can really take it up to the top notches. That's called a countertenor. Never heard of that before. Hmm. Mm-mm. 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 Try, Bob. Go ahead. No. Oh! no. <laughs> Come on. You can do it. I can't get up there. <laughs> 
What is the <laughs> main source of the Mississippi River, Marcia? Another geography question is here. Is it from? You is mean, it Lake Superior? Uh-huh. Is it Lake Minnetonka? Is it Lake Itasca or Lake Vermilion? Uh, Superior. No. Of course not. No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I said it with such conviction. It's Lake Itasca. Okay. Although the Mississippi flows 2,348 miles to the Gulf of Mexico and stretches 11 miles across at its highest width. Wow. It begins as a tiny stream stemming from northern Minnesota's Lake Itasca. It's a uh, 1.8 square mile glacial lake in Itasca State Park. What state is that? It's in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Although the, uh, the Mississippi actually starts out in Montana as the Missouri River. Yeah, and goes all the way to New Orleans. Yeah, it's amazing. That's trivia for OK Boomer from Bob and Marcia Smith. Back to you, Robert P. Rickman. Robert P. Rickman is here live and direct. And thank you very much, Bob Smith. Bob and I went to school together last century. All righty, let's uh, get up. Is it OK with you, Colleen? OK, Boomer. Well, thank you. OK, I'm up. Uh, and let's take a little walk. I'm going to show you something new here. You haven't seen this. Um, we're going to go to the... Radio station airport. Open the door here and aircraft is taking off. Oh my gosh. That's the SIU Boeing 737 overflying. Yeah, with the maroon and white. Very patriotic. Okay, let's continue our walk. Let's uh, test out the coffee. Mm. Oh, delicious as usual. Hey, everybody, it's the White Raven from the Hot, Hot, Hot Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WDBX, Sundays, 12 to 2. Join me and all the Gumbo Pot heads where I'll be bringing you all the best music from Louisiana, New Orleans, the Bayou, with a little bit of Delta Blues thrown in for good measure. So all you swamp rats, grab your Zydeco shoes, meet me in the Gumbo Pot at high noon. We always pass a good time, Chef. Peace, love, and Zydeco. Aye! Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. TechTime also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, TechTime is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's TechTime.it. TechTime dot it and if you're looking for a first class italian translator check out laura squigna it's spelled s-g-u-i-g-n-a laura squigna and you can find her on the tech time website under translators
Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on the The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. And as I mentioned before, Bob and I went to school together. I had another friend who we went to high school together, and we had a a 10-watt radio station in the high school, which we broadcast to our uh, suburb. Anyway, what I would like for you to do is listen very carefully to this next piece because it's the story of somebody who had a very tragic event occur to him when he was young, And he completely ignored it for years. And then it attacked him in a in a conference, something like 40 years, 40 years after it happened. It's a case of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it happened to a young Navy corpsman in San Diego, California in the late 1970s. He was one of the first responders to what was the deadliest air disaster in U.S. history at the time. What happened was a Pacific Southwest airliner was on final approach to Lindbergh Field in San Diego when, well, this is the reenactment. Gear down. Minutes from landing, pilot Bob Fox spots a distant plane. There's one underneath. I was looking at that inbound over there. A professional photographer happens to spot Flight 182 in flames. Hey, what do we got here? It's bad. Huh? We're hit, man. We're hit. Tough. We're going down. This is Okay. We'll call the equipment for you. The approach controller's radar reveals that the 727 has collided with the Cessna. Jesus Christ. It's an aluminum shower. To have two aircraft under your control collide is the worst nightmare, I think, for any controller. I don't think anything else could be that bad. This is it, baby. Break yourself. Ma, I love you. This huge mushroom cloud of smoke and fire was seen by thousands of people. Two planes have collided and fallen from the sky over San Diego. The city is in shock. But the full scope of the tragedy is only beginning to emerge. Art Liberty, a friend of mine from Park Forest, Illinois, where he went to high school, was working at the Naval Amphibious Base Coronado and was in charge of military sick call, the emergency room, and the ambulances. On the morning of September 25, 1978, Art and his team arrived at the scene of unimagined devastation. Art Liberty is with us now to talk about what this disaster did to him. Good afternoon, Art. Hi, good afternoon, Robert. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. Uh, I understand this is a tough conversation for you, but could we go maybe starting with the present. 
you covered that disaster. You tried to save lives, but there were no lives to save. And then you stuffed it psychologically for years, you told me. When did it break out? I was um, attending a conference in Cape Town, South Africa in April, the uh, uh, World Congress on Disaster and Emergency Medicine. And I attended a a presentation uh, by a colleague from the British Institute um, of Justice, a British Institute, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, he had done some research uh, that he was presenting on PTSD and paramedics. And I went up to him afterwards and invited him to lunch so I could talk about his research methodology. Because in my experience, uh, trying to get first responders to unload about their feelings is a very difficult task. And uh, as we were finishing our meal, he inquired as to why I was interested. And for some reason, um, I started telling him about September 25th, 1978, and my experiences. And I ended up completely losing it, sobbing in this beautiful restaurant overlooking Cape Town Harbor with all these people staring at me, wondering if that guy was crazy. And um, after that, uh, I started having nightmares, um, flashbacks. Um, I could actually smell burning jet fuel in the middle of the day sitting in my office. Uh, and it was it was really bad. I... I I'm very much a a type A personality, and to lose control over so much of my mental health, um, you know, I thought I was going nuts. I got very depressed as a result, um, became very irritable, socially withdrawn, uh, yelling at my staff for stupid things that I would not even be bothered by under normal circumstances. And fortunately, one of my uh, staff members is uh, an Iraq combat veteran, a Marine, who had been involved in 16 IED explosions. Uh, And he uh, uh, suffers from both traumatic brain injury as well as PTSD. And he sat me down and he said, look, you know, something's going on with you and we need to talk about this. And and so I told him and he said, you know, you got to get a hold of the PTSD team at the VA you need, you know, you need, you know, somebody to that knows what they're doing to help you with this. Now, now, prior to this, in 1978, when this happened, you were told by your chief that uh, you shouldn't talk about this to anybody in the Navy or any place else. Just talk to him. So PTSD has changed, at least the outlook, uh, as far as the way people look at it. Right. It was. Um it was at that time we didn't have things like critical incident stress management teams and you know to bring in, immediately bring in counselors when there's a traumatic incident there there wasn't any of that um, uh, my my mentor who was actually a physician's assistant uh, uh, chief warrant officer he um, you know he had been a corpsman for a long time uh, before he got in the PA program and he said look you know <laughs> This is what we're expected to deal with. This is what a Navy corpsman deals with, death and, and, and horrible events. And you just have to be able to, to wall it off and move on and take care of the next person. And you walled it off for how long? Well, 78 to 26, uh, 2015. So you, you had no symptoms that you are aware of in that period? Not, not that I'm aware of, no. Wow. That's amazing how you could wall it off and then it breaks through because of a discussion you had in a restaurant. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, when we talked a few weeks ago 
that what really got to you is that as a corpsman, your job is to save lives, and there were no lives to save. Well, yeah, that's that's just it. I mean, we knew it was going to be a multiple casualty incident in MCI, and so as we're driving up there from Coronado, even though we're you know going lights and siren, it was still a good fifteen minutes. And we're talking amongst ourselves. Okay, well, you you know you take the trauma kit, I'll take the drug bag. You know, you take the biophone. This is what we'll sweep for. This is what we'll do if we encounter this kind of an you know kind of an injury. We've got to make sure the burn kit's ready to go because there's going to be people you know that are burned. And we were just we were pumped. We were pumped to jump off the rig and start you know helping people. And we jumped off the rig and it was just it was just utter destruction. It was bodies and body parts and you know smoldering fires and the you know, fire departments running around trying to put it out and it was just we just kept looking and looking and there was nobody to rescue and um yeah yet, yet really, i would think a part of your brain was telling you that if, if someone is dead uh you can't rescue them so something was going on i guess it was just the impact of seeing that vast destruction that affected you well i think that had a lot to do with it and um of course when i saw parts of of a cessna 150 i had uh, gotten my private pilot's license in 73 through a navy flying club and and so realizing that that there was a private uh, single engine general aviation aircraft that was part of this kind of had an effect on me as well well, it does me, only I'm sure it doesn't have the effect it has on you. But any time I hear about a, a general uh, aviation airplane going down, it, it, I just don't, I don't react to it like other people do, because I'm a pilot. Well, and we've also had close calls. Yeah. And it's, it's there, but for the grace of God. I mean, I was, I was doing my solo time uh, back in 73, and I came in particularly low approach one day, and if I cleared power lines by three feet, I would be amazed. And by the time I got that aircraft down and got out of it, I was just totally shaking. Oh, yes. Because um, I was that close to being dead. And so I think that plays into it as well. We can easily put ourselves in into that situation. Well, after this horrible incident in 1978 you continued to fly didn't you yeah yeah Indeed. in fact i became a search and rescue pilot well that says something you know be, be uh, to your resilience some people might never want to fly again after seeing something like that in anything well surprisingly since april of this year i've had real problems flying okay so so it i you know i'm not a psychologist but uh, maybe they explained to you what happened. How come this all tumbled out at this time after more than 30 years? The, um, the therapist at, at, uh, at, at the VA clinic told me that a lot of folks in our age group that had undergone these type of traumatic events back in the 60s and 70s were having just a sudden onset of PTSD. And there's research ongoing but they're suspecting it has something to do with, uh, you know, a change in the in the neurochemical makeup as you become this age. So, right now, there's no research that's been completed, but I believe it's ongoing. Okay, so you're looking back, and something is happening in your brain. Now we're talking about 
uh, tragic accident. I'm, I'm talking to our listeners. A, uh, a Cessna uh, was run over by a Boeing 727 airliner in uh, over San Diego, and the airliner and, and the uh, Cessna went down, and 144 people were killed. And uh, Art Liberty was one of the corpsmen from the Navy who responded, and now he is suffering from PTSD. Could you define that particular illness for us? Uh, well, post-traumatic stress disorder is simply a overloading of the senses um, based on traumatic memories that are that are and they don't have to be buried because there's an there can be an immediate PTSD that that's onset is is within days or or weeks of the event and then there's delayed onset which is what I'm suffering from according to the people that know this um, and it can involve just a, a tremendous range of of uh, of impact on you, you can you know you can have depression, you can have rage. I mean, uh, I know some some veterans, especially uh, veterans from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, that somebody will say a wrong thing to them at a bar, and they just they just go crazy and, and beat people to a pulp. Um, one of my my friends here ended up in the VA psych ward for ten days because of just that. Uh, the suicide rate is incredible. Uh, I know the Marine Corps alone is losing one one member or one veteran a day. Boy, that's a lot of people. That's 365 people a year. And the Army's much higher. So it's, it's, it's a real problem um, from that standpoint. You just get to the point where you can't live with, with the effects. What I'm hoping to do through a type of cognitive behavior therapy called prolonged exposure is get to where I can manage the symptoms um, because it never, obviously, it never goes away. I mean, the memories are always there, but how you react to those memories, whether it's a nightmare at night or a hallucination during the day. Um, you know, you want to become less sensitized to it so that you have more control over your reaction rather than it controlling you. Now, you mentioned uh, going to meetings where you had other uh, former military people who suffer from PTSD, but you were reticent about going to meetings with uh, people from, say, Iraq or the Middle East who had fought and who had been in combat. Uh, have you found a meeting that you're comfortable in? Um, well, with the with the prolonged exposure, I, we discussed a number of modalities of, of possible therapies. I just I just got my intake interview for the PTSD team uh, about three weeks ago. Before that, I was seeing a general mental health therapist and a general mental health psychiatrist who's managing the medication that I'm on. Um, and we decided that of the various modalities from, you know, inpatient to in, intensive outpatient to groups, um, that one-on-one -on -one, um, with this PE, um, prolonged exposure therapy, would probably be the best for me. So, so it's not group therapy, it's individual. Correct. Now, what kind of strides have been made? Is there some sort of dealing with this PTSD that can have long-term positive benefits as opposed to when you first got it in 1978? What kind of strides have been made? I think uh, probably the most important is a recognition of it um, as, as, a, 
you know, as a, a, a valid bona fide thing. I, I think a lot of the issues um, that hit the Vietnam era vets um, was that you'd have this, 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 this constellation of symptoms and you'd describe it to, you know, physicians and other healthcare providers and they, you know, they didn't believe you that you were having the, the intensity of the effects. There was no recognition that this was, uh, you know, a, a mental health issue. So there was no treatment for it. And, you know, that's when you heard stories about, you know, people going up onto the, the roof with a rifle. Um, it was it was just completely ignored um, for years. <clears throat> but now, of course, it's well recognized. It's understood um, to be something that's beyond your control, that there are um, many successful treatment reg- regimens. The biggest issue now is getting folks to understand, A, this is what you're suffering with, and B, there is help out there. This is what you need to do. Um, is the uh, federal government doing a lot to help you? I know there's been the sequestration a few years ago and uh, money cutbacks for the uh, veterans. Is that affecting the treatment? I, I think what I've seen, um, now I've just, I, I, I'm rated 60% disabled for other reasons. I haven't even considered filing on this yet. Um, so I qualify to get all my health care from the VA, and I have been getting some of it there. Um, I think since the scandals out of Phoenix with the, the scheduling issues and so forth, um, two years ago and with the appointment of McDonald as the secretary? I think it's McDonald, yes. Yeah. Um, there's been some significant improvements in... Um, making care available. One of the big things that they that they they opened up was if you're more than 40 miles driving from a VA treatment facility, that you can obtain treatment from local providers, and the VA will pay for it. That's that's been a huge uh, assistance to access to care. Oh, I'm sure it has. Yeah. Um, what can the VA do even better? What needs to be done in the future? Well, I think part of it is, you know, part of it, as, as any government agency, is staffing and funding. Um, you know, there's a, a, a there's a significant issue with having adequate staff in these various specializations. Um, I mean, fortunately, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have suicidal or homicidal ideation. I am functional for the most part. I can pretty much work most days a full day. Um not as efficient as I used to be, certainly, uh, because of these intrusive thoughts, but certainly better than a lot of folks. So when it comes to getting me hooked up directly with a PTSD therapist, I'm not as big a priority because there are people that literally are not able to function and they need to be treated before I'm treated. But if there was more funding and more psychologists and psychiatrists and, and, and counselors available, then that would decrease the waiting time. Now, my thinking is, and uh, since we're, we're kind of breaking out of the news type of thinking, uh, if the government sends you out to war or to cover things that you covered in 1978, the government has an obligation to take care of your wounds, whether they be physical or mental. 
Oh, I absolutely agree with that, and I think that I think that that is pretty well accepted now, uh, not just you know within the government circles, but by the general public. I mean, there's there was a huge outcry um, by non-military uh, citizens when some of the abuses in Phoenix and some of the other VA medical centers came to light. Uh, and I think that's what spurred Congress to act as quickly as they did. That's good. Do you have any final thoughts about this? Well, I think the most important thing is to understand if you've undergone a traumatic event, and it doesn't have to be linked to the military. I mean... Uh, could it be child abuse? You could oh, well, certainly child abuse, sexual abuse, uh, very large um, factors involved in in non-military type PTSD. Even even being by a you know a horrible car accident and seeing things you've never seen before can lead to to a PTSD type reaction. If you're having the symptoms, uh, such as I've you know described during this interview that I have, get some help. <laughs> It'll not. It'll never go away by itself, and it'll. Ne- I mean, it's never going to go away anyway. But you, you just learn to live with it. You you learn to manage the symptoms. Okay. So that you can live. Okay. You know, you're never going to go back to the way you were before the onset of the PTSD. That's that's just that's fact. It's I like losing a limb. Basically, so you learn how to you learn how to deal and do what um, what needs to be done, and hopefully you regain control over uh, over your life and you move on the ntsb made major changes to airspace around san diego's Lindbergh field including installing instrument landing systems at other smaller airports in the area which allowed pilots to practice instrument landings in local airports with far lower traffic loads The traffic collision and avoidance system was later developed. It alerts pilots to possible collisions and provides instructions for avoiding them. Also, the FAA ordered that below 10,000 feet, flight crews limit their conversations solely to flying the aircraft. I trained at Montgomery Field for my private pilot's license in the 1980s, and my instructor admonished me for being too chatty when in the traffic pattern and reminded me of what happened to... PSA Flight 182. Art is now retired and living in the Carolinas, and he bought an airplane and flies it. That interview was recorded seven years ago. Now let's ask the question, does history repeat itself or does it rhyme? And that's uh, according to Mark Twain. Let's go back 100 years and see what happened to the president of the United States back then. Edward R. Murrow has the report. I, Woodrow Wilson. I, Warren Harding. I, Calvin Coolidge. I, Herbert Clark Hoover. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will face... Five men sat in the White House between 1919 and 1933. Two were great, two were average, and one was a bad president. And the greatest of these was the most hated. The fact that he was also for a time the most beloved man on earth made the tragedy of Thomas Woodrow Wilson even greater. The world must be made safe for democracy. When Wilson went to Europe the first time, the world's heartbeat was with him. In France, they lighted candles in his honor. He was cheered as no conqueror ever was. 
In Rome, his picture hung in almost every home. His was a glory far exceeding Caesar's. In England, his path from the Channel Coast to Charing Cross Station was strewn with flowers. This, indeed, was a man of peace. But less than a year later, the man of peace was a mere man of politics. He had made two trips to Europe and spent six months at that green bay's table with Clemenceau, Orlando, and Lloyd George. He had laid his 14 points containing his league before them, and to keep his dream alive had been forced to compromise and conciliate barter and bargain to such an extent that the product he brought home for approval was already suffering from the anemia, which was the old world's chronic disease. Gentlemen of the Senate, the Treaty of Peace with Germany was signed at Versailles on the 28th of June. <coughs> I avail myself of the earliest possible opportunity to lay the treaty before you for ratification. My brothers, the stage is set. The destiny disclosed. We cannot turn back. America shall in truth show the way. He had been back less than 30 days when he realized that he was losing his battle, that his moment was slipping away from him. Although a majority of the American voters and most newspapers favored the League, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge had marshaled sufficient forces of jingoism to kill it. So, for the first time in a non-election year, an American president boarded a train and took his fight to the people. I have not come here to debate this treaty. It speaks for itself, if you will let it. I am going to expound it, to urge you here in Columbus to assert the spirit of the American people in support of it. Do not let men pull it down. And the opposition followed him across the country. Senator William Borah in Chicago. It took George Washington seven years to gain independence from George III. And now, my friends, they want to give it back to George V. The president made as many as five and six speeches a day. But he was smiling less now. I can predict with absolute certainty that within another generation there will be another world war if the nations of the world do not concert this method by which to prevent it. The crowd roared, impeach Wilson, as Hiram Johnson shouted, he is asking us to hand American destiny over to the secret councils of Europe. It is the duty of the senators of this nation to keep America American. Wilson was picking up momentum. He had whipped Johnson in his own California. In Salt Lake City, his ovation was thunderous. On September 25th, he made his 40th speech in 22 days. It was his best one, and it was his last. Again and again, my fellow citizens, mothers who have lost their sons in France, have come to me and taken my hand and said, God bless you, Mr. President. 
I advised the Congress of the United States to create the situation that led to the death of their son. Why, my fellow citizens, should they pray God to bless me? Because they believe that their boys died for something that vastly transcends any of the immediate and palpable objects of the war. They believe, they believe, they believe. The address had been given at the fairgrounds in Pueblo, but that night the president left without visiting the livestock exhibition. He boarded the train for Wichita, but the Presidential Limited never stopped in Kansas. With shades drawn, halting only to change engines, it hurtled on to Washington. There, a few days later, he suffered an apoplectic stroke. Now he was dying. On March 19th, the Senate dealt the treaty and the League the final death blow. The vote was 15 short of the needed two-thirds majority, with many Wilson supporters voting against the watered-down version. The nation was almost without a president now. The gates of the White House remained closed, the windows dark. The customary flow of visitors dwindled to an occasional pilgrimage by an old friend. His kingdom, his power, and his glory were gone. Perhaps William Allen White put it best. With calumny rampant around him, he tasted the ingratitude of his republic, the statesman's ancient cup of hemlock. No wonder that on the high and empty altar, where the flame of his fame was quenched and the cold charred ashes were strewn, he lay helpless while the high priests of the temple cut out his heart. And that was Edward R. Murrow talking about Woodrow Wilson. The question here is, did this rhyme with anything that you hear happening today? It'll be your decision. And that wraps up OK Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman. I'd like to thank Bob and Marcia Smith, Art Liberty, Ann Stahlheber, and Janice Paul. I'm Robert Rickman. And remember, we all have options.